we are the descendants of 40 million people who left other countries, other familiar scenes, to come here to the United States to build a new life. I think it is not a burden, but a privilege. Welcome to Statutes of Liberty, an immigration podcast brought to you by Classco Immigration Law Partners. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Statutes of Liberty, an immigration podcast from Classco Immigration Law Partners. My name is Steve Miller. I am the editor on Classco's EB1 practice team. I had a team of technical writers who prepare EB1 and EB2 NIW petitions. I'm here with Vega Grumman and Lisa Felix, two senior associates at Classco, and we're going to talk today about the current state of practice in EB1 and EB2 NIW. Hi, Lisa. Hey, Vega. Hi. Hi. So um, one of the things that, of course, we have seen across the board under the new administration, under every category, is some increased scrutiny, um, but that is both a blessing and a curse, I suppose. Um, so trending right now, I'm seeing on the EB1 side for outstanding researchers, a little bit more pushback on the three-year experience, making sure that that's really well documented. Um, so that's something to keep in mind when preparing new petitions. Lisa, what are some of the things that you've seen on, um, on your end with the EB1? Well, I think we're seeing um, RFEs about uh, citations a lot, and it's causing a lot of confusion because the Immigration Service doesn't seem to know what they use citations for or what they want them to represent. And so uh, that's the subject of some discussion in letters of support. We want to be able to present what we think they mean and what we want the Immigration Service to uh, take away from our discussion of a person's citations. But in general, we use them for uh, usually one criteria, which is um, the, the publication of materials written by others about a scholar's work, but we also use them to support the impact that published research makes. And I think both of these issues, they were trending topics um, maybe about five or six years ago, um, around that time range. So you know, what is old is new again, and with the new administration, just a lot more scrutiny across the board. The thing with citations that's interesting is you can have a USCIS officer who looks at it and says, you know, on the one hand, you have someone who's being cited to a lot. So that underscores the original contributions and the interest to it for EB1 or national interest waiver purposes. On the other hand, there's always this, well, it's not really published material about them. One of the things I like to do is make a distinction between regular inline citations versus things that are more substantive discussions in um, someone else's published work. So even if there's just a little line that's, you know, in the breakthrough case or, you know, a novel discovery, something that has more of a commentary as opposed to just a footnote, um, Lisa, do you have any... Well, I think that does introduce um, a topic that's important in EB1 and EB2 NIW petitions is the, the role that opinions of experts play because the facts are very clear. If you have 123 citations, you have 123 citations. But then we turn to the experts to tell the Immigration Service what that means in your field. In your field, 123 citations might be a huge number 
Whereas in another field, they might, uh, you know, several hundred citations might be more um, extraordinary. And so you want the uh, opinions of your research letters to be able to explain to the USCIS what's special about your field and why, in this case, what they might claim as a small number is really a big number in your field. So um, I do think that the use of supporting documents and re reference letters to put the opinion that the USCIS needs to give a valid evaluation of your field I think is that's, important. That's a really good point. Um, the context is really key because otherwise the adjudicator is just going to come up with their own conclusions. Now, this is an adjudicator who may not have gone to college. They certainly have no special background in the field. They may look at a case from a bagpiper and then to seconds later, look at something from a nuclear physicist, and then look at something from a brain surgeon. They're not experts by any means. So the point is well taken. Those reference letters really provide context and a framework so that you're not comparing fields that are really not comparable. And I think, you know, adjudicators are still stuck somewhat in a more journals are the best form of evidence, or this is what this means, based on really outdated academic viewpoints, which of course academic and practitioners or private industry individuals don't necessarily have the same kinds of evidence mm -hmm. either. Well, I think that's something that the team uh, really tries to focus on when we approach a case is, you know, you can show things that are backed up by concrete evidence like publications or citations, um, but the adjudicator can't, uh, they can't push back against something that you can document with objective evidence, you know. If you say your person has written this many papers and you provide them with copies of this many papers, it's really hard to push back against that. But then they take this approach where they push back against, well, what are the significance of those papers? And that's where the expert testimony comes in. That allows you to frame it, just as you were saying. Right. And especially in computer fields, things where there's technology that's very rapidly advancing. The journal review process is a very long one. And some fields, it just they don't measure things with journal articles. It may be even conferences take too long. It could be workshops sure. that are the most important sign of someone's success. I think social science is like that as well because social science, the academic journal publications are notorious for taking literally two, three yeah. years mm -hmm. to get one article published. So, number one, it re represents a huge con or a huge accomplishment to have published an article in certain fields, but other avenues of disseminating your work then have more importance, like conferences, like workshops, like working papers, like white papers and reports. Sure, and I think that's where the convertible evidence clause comes in. Mm -hmm. and it allows you to present things that may define your field as... Uh, define accomplishment in your field, but may not be specifically uh, laid out in the plain language of the regulations. Yeah, and, and regulations, I guess, like journals, they take a very long time for them to update mm -hmm. and change. You know, it is, it is kind of a gift that the EB1 categories across the board have that, you know, other comparable evidence clause in it when I started practicing that only applied to extraordinary ability. Um, so it is nice because then it applies more toward other fields. Um, one um, thing I think is new that uh, certainly hasn't been updated in the regulations is the use of social media to document your accomplishments. Um, we've had uh, some opportunities to um, use online 
article publications as evidence or um, if an, an article that you wrote got covered by the science media and then it was retweeted several, you know, several times, that can be a very interesting way to show the immigration service that you're having an impact on the field or you're reaching a wider audience. Um, so it's important, I think, to keep track of what's happening to your work on social media. And there are petitions that could be based very much on social media, you know, particularly for visual artists. Um, mm -hmm. We've actually done some cases for people who are um, social media personalities, and, you know, the people's social media can really, I mean, if you have hundreds of thousands of followers, or some, yeah. some people have tens of millions or hundreds of millions mm -hmm. of followers, you know, that can really be beneficial to show. But even if you don't, you know, the, the content there can be um, persuasive. And, and perhaps this is a change, like you said, it's not just computer science and social sciences and arts. This could be a change overall in how every field is mm -hmm. disseminating the information. It could be that journals are just not what they were 10, 20 years ago, or even five. Yeah, and I think that's, I think it just keeps coming back to the importance of telling your story in a way that is persuasive, um, separate from the hard evidence that backs up what you're saying. You know, it's, it's, I think it, it, you can kind of get a foot in the door if you present an engaging petition that, you know, draws the adjudicator's attention and kind of has a certain personal level to it that just presenting a whole bunch of evidence doesn't have. Yeah, I think it's much, much more than your CV mm -hmm. or your resume. It's, like Steve said, telling the story about it. What makes you special? What sure. makes your research interesting? Why are you different from other people in your field? So what about um, secondary evidence that you would use to supplement sure. primary documentary evidence? So yeah, when they question the significance of primary documentary evidence, like just you know a copy of your papers or um, copies of the journals that have cited you, uh, it's really important to provide uh, this kind of secondary level of evidence that's, you know, maybe rankings for the journal, uh, attendance statistics for conferences you presented at, because while they are obligated to consider the weight of expert testimony, it, you know, is just another backup and reinforcement option to have, you know, cold metrics to go along with your uh, primary objective evidence. This is the kind of thing that you'd want uh, to provide for example, if you were telling your mom, Mom, I got an article published in Physical Letters D. She's like, you wrote a letter? No. Physical Letters D is an important journal in my field. It's ranked number three. That kind of evidence, because yeah. that's going to give the full story. Exactly. And that's, that's about the audience that you're speaking to. It's really, again, not technical, not someone who has any special expertise. Yeah, and um, for things like uh, if you've received an award, it's it's great that we can you know show a picture of the trophy you got. But we what they're really looking for is why did you get that? So we need to present things like the criteria for getting that award, the number of people you were up against when applying or being selected for it, and it's 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 that extra level of documentation that really makes it more difficult for the adjudicator to question the significance of what you've done. I think this comes into play as well when you're talking or wanting to use grant funding mm -hmm. as evidence of awards. Because some grants are more um, matter-of-fact routine funding for your research, whereas other grants are truly internationally or nationally recognized prizes for having accomplished something. So the Immigration Service is looking 
kind of backward at why you got that award. It should be the result of an accomplishment as opposed to solely for funding for future research or solely based on your proposal for your future research. So if you can show that I got this award to, fu to um, fund my future research because I did this study that had really great results, and based on that, I won this. What do you think about grants that are awarded by really large household names, things like the National Interests, um, National Institutes of Health or the National Science Foundation or something like that? Um, do you think that those by themselves would be awards, or do you still put them in the same context? I just I generally like to um, look at the bigger picture of that as well. So if the person is getting hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars, then yeah, the numbers are significant. If it's a small, you know, twelve hundred dollar uh, travel grant or something, maybe not as heavily weighted in terms of fulfilling that criteria. We could add that under um, the overall merits to show that the person is consistently performing very well in their field, um, but I think it, it still matters how you got the award, what it was for, who you competed with, how big of an award is it, is it nationally or internationally based, those things I think are important. Yeah, the, the overall merits analysis, of course it's not new, it's, it's from 2010, it still feels new to me mm -hmm. for some reason, <laughs> um, I think about the days before, right, but you know that really change the way these cases were adjudicated because, of course, the regulations say, you know, two out of these possible criteria or three out of these possible criteria, and now you have something that says, well, we're going to look at it overall, and then, you know, maybe if you met three of them, we're still going to say, no, this isn't good enough. So, you know, when we present our cases, one of the things we try to do is this, this three-part driving the point home. Tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them, right? And then the overall merits, you know, all of those things that might not necessarily fit neatly. You can put them, you can kind of slide some of those things in and that part of the analysis too. Yeah, and I think that's where the opinions are most useful. Mm -hmm. So if we say somebody published 17 articles and we give them copies of 17 articles, we don't need to say anything more. We've proved that they published 17 articles. But in the overall merits, the question is, is this internationally recognized as outstanding? Right. And yeah. so we have to talk about that the journals are international journals. And the first authorship demonstrates that this is your original work. And the... 75 citations to this article shows that this is internationally recognized as outstanding. Right. So it's the overall merits where you demonstrate that you've reached the standard or the quality that the immigration service is requiring. Because whenever they come under question and a request for evidence, really what the adjudicator then is doing is going through and knocking down everything that you've already given them. You say there's been 17 publications, and they say, well, everybody who's in the field publishes something, and every publication has to be original, so you're not really that special. This isn't really set aside and everything eventually gets cited too and you know blah 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 so when you get an RFE like that um, what kinds of additional information would you give to reply to that um, or address that well I think in the reply to such an RFE you'd take this the same analysis a it meets the stated regulatory criteria 
So you can't say it doesn't. And B, it meets the standard that's set also in the regulations and then explain why. But it's likely something that you've already told them, so you might have to repackage it or draw their attention to something much more specific than you know, a, a voluminous petition with hundreds and hundreds of pages. An RFE might be your chance to dive in on the very specific couple of points that really make your case approvable. I think of this in, like a something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. You know, so you might actually have someone who wrote an original letter going back and saying like, I said this initially, and then you said this, and actually, let me tell you how it really is and mm-hmm. what this means, mm-hmm. and then maybe something new where you have a new expert coming in. Maybe you didn't understand my first letter. <laughs> oh. It does seem like a lot of our RFE work is just restating things we've already mm-hmm. said. You know, I mean, I'm sure that they, they're just looking for reasons to push back on things. And, and it may just... be the adjudicator's either inability to understand mm-hmm. what we said or unwillingness to look through it all and read it very carefully, sure. or maybe they just need it expressed differently. Um, I think it does. We'll do it. Yeah, <laughs> sure. There is a lot of variation among adjudicators, and sometimes it seems like you get an adjudicator that you just don't feel like this came across the right desk. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, if they're they're looking at it, of course, even worse than a request for evidence would be a notice of intent to deny. And that really gives you an idea of what the adjudicator is thinking and how they're predisposed. And I think having done so many in so many fields, you can get a sense where the resumes are comparable, but they end up with different results from the USCIS. Sure. There's just an element of, you know, the human... Uncertainty. Yeah, uncertainty. Yeah. Sure, subjectivity. So we've talked a lot about um, preparing petitions for people in traditional academic research-based positions, partly because that is a lot of the caseload that we handle. But this category and its related classifications uh, offer up a lot of opportunities for people who aren't in traditional academic fields. There's, you know, the EB2 National Interest Waiver Option, which under the new Donisar prongs, which we can discuss in a later episode of the podcast, uh, presents all these opportunities for entrepreneurs and business people and financiers. And in fact, we uh, have recently run a series of blog posts up on the Classico website that kind of detail the different options and opportunities uh, for people who aren't in traditional academic fields when it comes to EB1 and EB2 and IW. Uh, You can check those out, and uh, we will hopefully be discussing those on uh, later episodes of the podcast. Fega, Lisa, thank you for joining me today, and uh, thank you all for listening, and we'll talk to you on another episode. For more information, visit us at classicallaw.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. You can email your immigration questions to podcast at classicallaw.com. The material contained in this podcast does not constitute direct legal advice and is for informational purposes only. An attorney-client relationship is not presumed or intended by receipt or review of this presentation. The information provided should never replace informed counsel when specific immigration-related guidance is needed. Thank you.